0: Printing mm-hmm. money does not create resources. Changing the money supply does not create any value of any kind. There's no additional economic good produced just by changing this number. And I guess you can think about it just by what would happen if we, if we change the money supply without changing its distribution.
1: Hello and welcome to the Freedom Footprint Show. I'm your host, Luke the Pseudo-Finn, and I'm here, as always, with Knut Svahnholm. Good evening, Knut. Good evening, Luke. Nice to see you again. It's been very long. We haven't done this for two days. Two days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's a record for this week, anyway. Yeah. Perfect. Today, our guest is Troy Cross. Really excited to have him on today. I've certainly been a big fan since all of his environmental stuff with the mining came out. It's very interesting stuff, so excited to have him on and have a conversation.
2: Yeah, me too. I I was fortunate enough to spend a week with Troy on Madeira and in Lisbon, where we had a wonderful little walk talking Bitcoin philosophy and stuff. And it's great to finally have an actual philosophy professor in this
0: philosophy show so uh welcome troy there we go welcome troy well thank you all for having me and knut it was pleasure of madeira was all mine and i really enjoyed our walk in lisbon and i thought about it for long afterwards actually yeah and, me too uh, yeah actual philosopher versus philosopher means nothing and this is bitcoin work <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're working. Some of what have attracted to me to Bitcoin in the first place was actually being anonymous and not being a philosophy professor and not having a conversation that's gatekept by that kind of stuff, credentials, and where you're at. Philosophy is very prestige obsessed. You know what I mean? Like, I guess like humans generally, you immediately form a hierarchy, and most of your job as a philosophy professor is actually about grading people whether that's grading students or whether that's reading files for people applying for jobs or whether that's giving people raises or whether that's inviting people to conferences or whether that's letting people's papers into a journal, it's like a good 80% of your job is putting labels on people of how good they are. And no, I, it... I, you know, I'm just grossed out by that. I hate that fucking part of the job for, yeah. at, at every level. I hate it. And then I hate the kind of a crude authority that comes with it and i love this is one of my favorite things about bitcoin in the bitcoin community i love the way it's permissionless there's no gatekeepers anywhere you can say any shit you want no matter how stupid referees will not actually save you from saying stupid shit (laughs) and then you have to live with the consequences good or bad as different audiences perceive it and sometimes an audience two audiences will perceive things in very different ways and you live with both consequences, right? So, I mean, anyway, I love this. Anyway, I loved meeting you, that conversation, of course, your books and the talk you gave at Bitcoin Amsterdam, which I thought was awesome.
1: Right? So it's
0: a real <laughs> pleasure for me to be here. Too. Oh,
2: oh, I get all tingly now, Tori. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thanks a lot. The, first of all, the, the grading people and putting up barriers doesn't sound very philo- philosophical to me. So I can, I can imagine it's a pain in the ass. And uh, a saying by a- Ayn Rand comes to mind that you can choose to deny reality, but you can't choose to uh, live without the effects of denying reality. That's tightly close to, to what's going on in Bitcoin. And, you know, what you say echoes on Bitcoin Twitter mostly, but still Bitcoiners are not afraid to slay their heroes. So uh, merit is the only thing that counts. And
0: Yeah yeah it's funny how we build these constructs right constructs like whether it's plan b and a model of bitcoin's price yeah or whether you know it's a construct of an explanation of bitcoin's value you know it's an inflation hedge or whatever it's a payment system and then these these constructs do come to be associated with their proponents and then stuff happens <laughs> and, yeah. and then you know would you see the would you see the model broken and then even the rainbow model broke it. its right. Then there's this kind of blame game, credit game that happens, right? Who's going to, how are you going to spin this? What happened? And was it foreseeable? Was it a good model that just didn't work out? You get this big spin game happening, right? But you're right. I mean, it, it, in philosophy, it's much, much harder to be held accountable by reality because yeah. you're not making empirical predictions. It's almost like the perfect, it's the perfect... Insulation from, <laughs> which is why, I mean, when I do metaphysics and epistemology, and metaphysics, it largely doesn't make any predictions. Neither does epistemology. We don't make predictions. So if you can spin really well, then in a way, there's no dis- holding. There's no getting it wrong. Like you can <laughs> just continue to spin and yeah. spin, and there's never any point where people are like. Yeah, I bought a bunch of Bitcoin because of your model and now it's worth very little. So you suck. Right. That never <laughs> that moment never comes. No. You you said it could you said it could be private, but it's not. You said it could route around governments, but it isn't. You, you never have any possibility like, like that, right? So even the fiat world, which rescues themselves with power, right? They rescue themselves by just changing you know directives from the top if they make a mistake. We don't even have that, right? We just, we we don't even have like the possibility to beat us with power. It's a perfectly self contained closed loop. And and Nicholas Nassim Taleb, who's wrong about Bitcoin, is definitely right about the IYIs, the intellectual yet idiot, of which philosophers don't exactly fit that bill, but they fit a part of it perfectly. The the lack of a feedback loop. That's another thing nice about Bitcoin, right? There is a feedback loop of reality. Yeah
2: this is a perfect segue in, into the things I want to pick your brain about because I have an idea what this where I want to take this conversation. Okay. And the first thing is about the validity of science and I'm writing a piece now on or what might be my next book I don't know yet but I'm I'm so fascinated by the subject and it's the subject of praxeology and uh in, in doing so, I had to look up a, a couple of things and deep dive a, a bit further on what separates an a priori science from an a posteriori science. I, I'm sure you're familiar with the terms a, a priori and a posteriori. So for the listeners, an a priori sci- science is a science that you know uses deductive reasoning alone to come to conclusions from a fixed set of axioms or assumptions that that seem to be irrefutable because arguing against them proves them right so so uh, the first axiom of praxeology is that human action is purposeful behavior and if you try to disprove that you need to purposefully <laughs> argue against it and in and Engage yourself in a human action and therefore prove it to be purposeful. My favorite saying about free will is from Christopher Hitchens, who said, Of course, I have free will. I have no choice but to have it, which I think is a very perfect framing of that because, you know, it, any argument becomes pointless if we don't have free will. So we have to assume free will in order to have a conversation at all about anything. So this is to lay the groundwork here, and as I view it, uh, like the the most grounded and most a priori sciences, the branches of science there are mathematics for the objective reality, and praxeology for the, the subjective in relationships between human beings and why we act. And uh, one of the w- what I've realized in hindsight is the that. This is why I love Bit- Bitcoin so much because it bridges the two worlds the objective reality and subjective, you know, axioms of action and why we do stuff. And there's even a case to be made for a priori sciences being more robust and more rigid than a posteriori sciences, which is. When we say science, we usually mean a posteriori sciences, which are based in observation. So so we make an experiment, we test the results and have them peer-reviewed, and the experiment is repeated. And if we get the same results over and over again over time, we take our thesis to be true. Which may or may not be the case. It may be more like it may be likely to be true, but another theory may come at a later date to to trump that theory, which is what happened to Newtonian physics. So Newton was almost right, but not really, because Einstein's theories sort of debunked Newton.
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, let me just be upfront. I'm not a deep student of the Austrian school, nor you know, nor the origins of praxeology. I'm passingly familiar with it but i'm not deep into it not as deep as i'm sure you and many bitcoiners in the academy i don't think anybody studies praxeology or very few people (laughs) so it's a it's actually sort of new to me i'm a neophyte here i discovered the austrian school actually Mm. through bitcoin i think 2013 was when i read the first austrian economics i'd ever read you know, I, I ordered some books. I ordered some Hayek uh, and um, ordered it to my home. I didn't want it coming to school because I feared that, like, that I did, somebody would think the wrong thing about me if I, they saw me reading Hayek. <laughs> so, I mean, it, you know, it, I think it's not an unfounded fear, given not my particular college, but just the way that school is perceived in general. But, you know, praxeology goes back to Kant, ultimately, Immanuel Kant. And Kant's one of the people who, to the extent this distinction between a priori and a posteriori can be made clear. He tried to make it clear. And I've actually taught a class on the a priori and a posteriori (laughs) at the graduate level on, on the a priori itself. It's a hotly contested distinction within philosophy. What exactly it means there are a lot of philosophers who deny that there is any such thing as the a, priori. the a priori. The category of a priori knowledge is mysterious because if you think of us as, I should say, it's mysterious within the context of naturalism. If you think that human beings are organic, physical creatures like the rest of nature, If you think of if you think of the rest of nature as just purely physical, mechanical, chemical creatures, yeah. Then, the question is, how do we know something without experience? Like, how do you know that? And that was Kant's question that drives him in the critique of pure reason. In particular, how do you know something independent of experience that has authority over all possible experience? So Kant's starting point was geometry. Take something like the angle side angle equivalence of triangles. You have two yeah. triangles that have an angle side angle equivalence, then they're equivalent. And you have Euclid proves this in the elements. And the proof is with a straight edge and compass. All of Euclid's
2: proofs well, are straight edge. Well, compass. if I may yeah. interrupt you there for a moment, because mathematics, while mathematics originated in empirical research and people actually testing, you know, W- what pi was and trying to come up with an es- estimate and also, you know, tr- trying Pythagoras theorem and everything by measuring stuff. Mathematical proofs are another thing and they are a priori. Oh, I totally agree. So, so so, so, you can come up with hints of what reality is, well, actually is, by empirical testing and then...
0: but To, to pr- prove it, exactly. To prove it, you need a priori thinking. No, exactly. So the straight-edge compass proof, it's not a matter of proving for one. It's a proof for all possible triangles. Yeah. and it's, I mean, it uses the straightedge and compass, but in principle, that's dispensable, right? Like the straightedge and compass is a physical device, but you could do it in your head. It's, exactly. It's not. It, 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 the material elements of a proof are only for the purpose of discovery, not for the purpose of justification. The justification yeah. is a priori. It must be because it holds authority over all possible triangles and the same it goes for mathematical proofs they hold for all possible sets of objects or all possible measurements now the mystery is like how can natural beings like us know something about all of reality all possible reality without testing it you know (laughs) how is that possible and kant's answer was wild his answer was called the Copernican revolution of thought. His answer was that actually space is the form within which we perceive. Time is a form within which we perceive. And also our mind has categories within which we think. And that the world as we know it is constructed out of things in themselves and the ways we think together. Yeah. And that's why we are able to know things universally, because we're really knowing things about the ways of experiencing reality. And that's how they can hold with authority, right? That's called the Copernican Revolution of Thought, rather than, you know, the Earth being at the center. The sun is at the center, the Earth revolves around it. For Kant, rather than external reality being at the center, the knower is at the center, the ways of knowing,
1: right?
0: yeah. That's beautiful. (laughs) It's a beautiful move, one of the most beautiful moves in the history of philosophy. But also almost everybody thinks that's got to be wrong. (laughs) So so the the category of the a priori remains a mystery today. How is it possible to know things like that? And a lot of naturalistic philosophers try to, in some way, get rid of the category of the a priori because they can't understand how we could possibly grasp reality independent of experience in a universal and authoritative and necessary way.
2: All right, here I'd like to make a book recommendation, and I've got a few, and this is a second-hand book recommendation, because a guy we interviewed last week, Max Hillebrand, you, I believe you met him, he, he's a very good praxeological thinker, and he recommended two books to me, which both turned out to be some of the best books I've ever read, and one of those books is called Comic Theory and the Austrian Method. It's the most boring title ever. But it's by Hans-Hermann Hoppe. Yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with. Hoppe is most famous for his book, Democracy, the God that Failed, which I think is a vastly inferior book to this one, even though that book is good as well. But this book contains two Did you say the title again? Economic Theory and the what? And the Austrian Method. Austrian Method. Yeah. Okay. And he lays a he lays out a case for the opposite uh, of what the naturalists are claiming because they okay. say well, how how can a priori exist at all and he he makes the case for for a poster, posteriori never being able to to deliver an absolutely one hundred percent correct answer because if you're using empirical evidence and looking at at uh, you know things in hindsight. You're you're prone to be biased at at all times, and the map can never be the territory. (laughs) So uh, a perfect model of the universe would have to be the the universe itself. So, So he makes the case for a priori thinking being the superior method for almost all branches of science, which I find extremely interesting because it goes against everything i've learned but it makes so much sense when you deep dive into praxeology and you look at the world everything is so much clearer why things are the way they are it's depressing in a sense because because you see through uh, vast amounts of bullshit everywhere but it's very very accurate it feels accurate it feels like an accurate description of what's going on ever since i was a child i was like i remember in my school years i thought the social sciences were even then i had the you know feeling gut feeling that this isn't really science it's opinion <laughs> and i i i love mathematics for the opposite reason that it, this is pure either i know this stuff or i don't either i get it or i don't and i hated all the subjects which in which i had to study for something and memorize something or like why are they forcing me to think this way? So, so and with praxeology, it's the same thing. I can't argue against
0: it. And that's why I find it so fascinating. And um, yeah. I, I'm I'm curious to read the book. Yeah. Um, I, I think that I think there is such a thing as a priori knowledge. Um, I'm I'm not a naturalist in a way because of it, or I'm skeptical of naturalism because it 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 doesn't account for a priori, a priori knowledge. And I oh. think a priori knowledge under, I wouldn't say sciences are a priori. Otherwise, we could kind of do all the sciences from the armchair. And I think there's a very limited amount we can do from the armchair. And that is what we have learned from the history of sciences. So, I mean, look, Leibniz, the co-inventor of the calculus, he thought ultimately everything was, our, was a priori. But you would need an infinite mind in order to calculate everything. You know, <laughs> to, you know, Descartes was a synthetic <laughs> yeah. to this. Uh, and in fact, Descartes really the starting point, right? Because yeah. this piece of a priori knowledge, and even what gets Kant going, is the cogito. It's the it's the I think, therefore I am. What you described yeah. earlier as uh, human action is purposeful, or I am free. These basic things that must be presupposed in order to engage in thought, in order to engage a reason. The ultimate, exactly. One, yeah. The yeah. ultimate one is I am thinking. Yeah. And that's Descartes, right? So Descartes yeah, like. The- Actually, the whole point of the meditations, Descartes' most famous work, Six Short Meditations, which he sends to the Sorbonne in a letter to his friend, Mersenne, he says that the point of his meditations is not what he says in the letter. The letter to the, to the faculty, he says, this meditation does three things. It proves the existence of God, the immortality of, and the, immortality of the soul, the independence of mind and body. And they, of course, they like to hear this because they're they're facing a threat of... It's clickbait. It's (laughs) clickbait. Yes. (laughs) In his letter to Mersenne, he says, the real agenda I have is to destroy the philosophy of Aristotle. And that is the epistemology of Aristotle. And the epistemology of Aristotle is that all knowledge comes from the senses. And the senses ultimately... You generalize on the basis of extensive experience, and that's the origin of knowledge. And what Descartes wants to show is that no knowledge begins with reason. Yeah. So, and he's oh, a boy. geometer. Accident that he is a he is a geometer. You know the Cartesian plane. That's Descartes, yeah. right? Yeah. So I think there is such a thing as a priori knowledge. I think that it lies underneath all of sciences because the practice of science has to presuppose of any science has to presuppose various things like the cogito. Yeah. Other things like. Basically we presuppose all the time that nature is uniform that the past will resemble the future that the unobserved parts of the world are in their most general respects like the observed parts of the world those things cannot be proven through experience they cannot so every science relies on the principle of induction which i just articulated it, it presupposes the ability of the it presupposes that the world makes sense in some yeah. way that, that yeah. science requires in order to work. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So and and of course every discipline of science uses mathematical reasoning, uses deductive reasoning. That's all part of the practice of science. So- well, praxeology doesn't.
2: It, it's not it's not in the least bit mathematical. And and that's also why I find it so so fascinating. It it, it can prove why you can't apply mathematical models to economics.
0: Well, Why it ha- Doesn't it have to say things like, if it's going to be a predictive of human experience, doesn't it have to have principles about more and less? Yeah, it does.
2: But it, but it, it admits that, that our va- inner value hierarchies, which determines what we'll do next, are ordinal and not cardinal. So they can't be quantified. It does say something about prices. And, you know, if you do X, prices will go up or down. But you can say that without saying by how much or, yes, of you know, course. so, so, so uh, uh, in, in that sense, it's mathematical, but it's ordinal mathematics and not cardinal, gotcha. which, which so is like another partial, field.
0: Um, partial orderings are fine, but, but not, um, not mapping onto a number line. No,
2: so, so plan B's model is bullshit according to praxeology. Uh, and, well, and uh, okay. Yeah, uh, Praxeology was right. His model was bullshit. So
0: yeah. Here,
1: here's
0: the <laughs> even <fucking> empirically. empirically. <laughs> here's my you know, just as a as a as a philosopher who's not into praxeology and needs to learn about it, here's my kind of skepticism coming into it that I want the experts mm-hmm. to address, which is um the, the the big challenge facing any a priori science is getting anywhere with a priori, known axioms. So you have you have your axioms. If they are known and they're a priori, great. And then how much can you deduce from them? And the, the history of a priori thinking is, well, we just can't get very far. <laughs> so so yeah. that's, I mean, like t- taking Descartes for the first one, right? The first person who tries yeah. to do this is Descartes. He yeah. tries to prove the existence of God with a priori methods. He tries to prove, yeah, the separation of mind and body and while the first axiom he has, which is, I think, looks really good. And then he gets to "I exist" because I have to be doing the thinking. So I'm the guy doing the thinking. So I, which just, is which is wrong, and has been updated. Right. Oh, to, I, already, I think. Already.
2: I think therefore some thinking is going on somewhere. <laughs>
0: exactly. It's <laughs> already a contemporary criticism of that move, right? Yeah. Just but, there's some thinking doesn't mean there's a thing doing the thinking. Maybe the thing you're talking about it. Isn't a subject that is thinking, but rather there is just thought, 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 thought. It's so tricky to get. So basically, like here's the way I think about it: like the structure of knowledge we can think of as like a pyramid. And at the bottom of this pyramid, if you if you admit only a priori reasoning, you have an amazingly strong structure. You have an incredibly, you know, you can't you can't be wrong, but how much can you really build how many blocks are at the bottom that are knowable like that and how high can you build a pyramid on strictly a priori knowledge and deductive reasoning and the history suggests you don't get very far with that that's (laughs) no so that's anyway that's so that's what i'm curious about
2: yeah well i i would say you can get a lot further than people think you can get uh, because there are something, if you take praxeology to be true, of course, some of the praxeological thinkers themselves might have been wrong about certain, you know, conclusions. They they might have drawn the wrong conclusions, and uh, later praxeologists m- may find poke holes in their arguments. And that, that, but but this is just like any other branch of science. Of course, scientists make mistakes, and uh, they. Uh, the noblest thing to do is to disprove your own thesis that later on in life and so on and so forth. I mean, but yeah, but but there's there's a whole lot that you can uh, that you can derive from from praxeology. One of them being how how uh, violent behavior and theft uh, in particular hurts the thief as well in the long <laughs> run, at least, and how. It, th- there's another book this is the other book re- recommendation it, it's a book called the Ethics of Liberty by Murray Rothbard oh yeah uh, uh, okay. and that th- that's a very hardcore book and it, it upsets a lot of people because it uses a terminology that is brutal to to uh, the uninitiated he refers to a fetus as a uh, parasite on the mother and so on but it's only to yeah. make the point. Of what's uh, <laughs> what's going on in terms of who's you know it, it, in terms of stealing resources and living off of another body and, and so on and so forth. So if you can get past that, it's a very enlightening book because he tries to derive an ought from an is, sort of, and derive an ethic f- from uh, from praxeology alone. And I really like that kind of thinking. And I like the thing I wrote about in Everything Divided by 21 Million is that the thing that makes us assign value to anything in life is the scarcity of our time on this earth. If we were immortal and indestructible, we could always postpone everything till tomorrow indefinitely. So we would never do anything if we had an eternal life to look forward to. So, and. We must assign value to stuff in order to act that's we, we act the, the, these are the basic some of the basic axioms we we act because we feel uneasy in some way or another so we want to relieve ourselves of that felt uneasiness and that might be anything it might be uh, oh shit i'm <laughs> my foot is stuck or, or it might be oh i really feel an urge to help people in africa or it might be Oh, I really need to, to work for 13 hours every day in order to create the iPhone, or it might be whatever. Whatever makes you feel uneasy, you try to you try to achieve a, a state of less uneasiness. That's why you do things at the very core level of what's going on inside you. And praxeology doesn't, doesn't really take into account any psychological phenomena or anything like that. It just accepts that a, a person acts because he wants to uh, elevate himself from a state of uneasiness to a state of less uneasiness. And
0: that's I mean, all, really all there is to it. And you can derive so much from that. Alone. I mean, is that, is that uneasiness seems to have, to me, a certain quality to it where I can imagine, maybe I'm just using the term in a different way, but I can imagine two different states, which are both Neither one is uneasy, but mm-hmm. one is still better than the other okay is that is that is that not possible for you to imagine
2: well uh, it it doesn't it's, say anything about absolute uneasiness it's it's re- always relative until uh, to the to the next state that you're trying to achieve let's take uh, let me give it make it specific so
0: yeah you know suppose we're um we're having we're sitting down having a dinner. And having a, you know, it's like, a, I, I don't know, we have a particular, we got, we, we're having a, a glass of wine and yeah. it's pretty good wine, but you've had better wine before. Yeah. Like, I don't feel uneasy at all <laughs> because we we're having a great time, but, you know. but I do recognize that there are better, better bottles of wine out there. And <laughs> it, it, if one were available, have that, I, I'd have that one instead, but I don't feel uneasy about it. No, but but
2: but it's always relative uneasiness. So in that situation, in that particular situation, let me lay it down for you. At each moment in that during that dinner, you have to choose whether to take another bite, whether to take a sip of wine, or whether to continue the conversation, or whether to go to the bathroom and take a piss, or whatever. You you always need to do something. Yeah. And before doing something, you evaluate the options you have and you try to use some means to satisfy your most urgent ends. So that's what's going on in your brain. And yep. in a praxeological sense, the present includes every includes the whole time that the action occurs. So the present is not a specific point in space-time, like in physics, but sure. it is the present refers to evaluating an option, uh, uh, imagining a, a more satisfied state to be in, and then choosing between what alternatives you have at hand at the moment in order to get closer to that to that state. So it, it, so if you're fine with the wine, then the, the wine is pretty high up on your value, or pretty low down on your, in your value hierarchy scale. So you pr- you'll probably choose some more urgent need. Like talking to me, for instance, if you find that more interesting than waving at the waiter to get a better bowl of wine. Uh, and we've been in this exact situation, I, I yes. believe. <laughs> so, 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 so it, it's not, it's not that hard to see. Uh, uh, but the interesting things happens when when you get to the law of uh, diminishing marg- marginal utility, because if you have um, a, a a set of units that are uh, so similar that you can you can view them uh, as the same thing, really. So so, if, if you and your fr- uh, wh- what's the example? If you have three coffee mugs, and uh, you you use one for drinking coffee, that's your most urgent need. Uh, you use one for storing your toothbrushes in, and you the third is just for decoration. And then one morning you spill your coffee over your hand, so you drop your coffee mug to the floor and it breaks. What what will you do then? Will you just stop drinking coffee forever? no you'll probably use the 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 lesser urgent need cup the decoration cup and replace that substitute the morning coffee drinking cup for that and if you find that need to have an a decorative cup uh, interesting enough you'll buy a new cup but uh, chances are that you've just replace your drinking cup with the one that was just decoration so so if you have a set of similar that means that each additional unit of a thing in this case a, a coffee mug brings less value every time you you get an additional thing so if you have an apple tree like if you have if you're hungry one apple can be a, a great thing two apples can be even better but at some point you're full and you won't be more satisfied by getting more apples they will just rot and you can't do anything with them i mean <laughs> There's a okay, so so uh, and then money comes into the situation, and money can be traded for everything else. So it it has a very the marginal utility is very high at all times because you can always exchange it for something else. So that's why you can derive so much from these basic basic axioms.
0: I mean, to some extent, what you're saying, and I remember my, my brief forays into praxeology before, also had this thought. Maybe you're the right person to ask. Is how does this differ from, you know, a theory of expected utility and generally what we call decision theory in philosophy? You know, decision theory is about maximizing utility. You know, there are different, there are different choice points to be made in decision theory, but decision theory is largely a priori as a science. I guess it's the, uh, well, broadly speaking, rationality is two things. It's, it, it's a kind of trying to achieve a fit between the mind and the world. And mm-hmm. that takes two forms depending on the direction of fit. So in epistemology, it's about conforming your mind to the world. And rationality is like doing that well. How do you yeah. how do you, what are the sort of the best practices for conforming your mind to the world? <laughs> yeah. De- decision theory is about conforming the world to your mind. That is getting what you want in the optimal way. Either mm-hmm. individually for individual coll- you know, action, uh, individual rational decision theory, or collectively as a body, which I would say a lot of the discipline of economics is about how we collectively satisfy desire, i.e. fit the world to our mind. Y- yeah, you know, but you in praxeology, kind of there's no such hair. thing. <laughs> okay, <Let> us- so <laughs> how, how is... How is uh, praxeology different from d- d- just decision theory?
2: Well, I know very little about decision theory, but I would, my, my guess would be that decision theory takes psychological phenomena into account, which praxe- praxeology doesn't. It just acknowledges that people act and they use means to reach ends, and in order to do that, they need this valuation hierarchy and you have the law of diminishing returns and everything. Everything is derived from these basic axioms of just accepting the fact that actions speak louder than words. So, so, so it's not about the actual decision. It's just about uh, observing that a decision was made and that the person acted. And what, what, kind of, what, what you can logically deduce and, and arrive at, what kind of conclusions you can draw from, from that alone. So so but I know too little about decision theory to to, okay. to even g- comment on this. You you'll well, have, to we, have to give me a lecture first.
0: <laughs> we have to like uh you know we <laughs> we have to have a, this meeting again because I have to answer the question for myself uh on the on the uh yeah. You know on the praxeology side because uh, because decision theory also doesn't require any inputs from psychology. It yeah. does require uh it does require preferences mm-hmm. like it takes preferences as a uh, as the input so and those preferences can take different forms depending on the decision theorist the standard way to do it is to map them to a number line right it's to assign utils to a certain okay is
2: it, but it's that an ordinal or a cardinal number line because that's here, cardinal, here
0: that's cardinal right so
2: because here i think praxeology differs a lot because
0: it ad- but, but, admi- there are, but there are varieties that Of decision Mm -hmm. theory that also are just they take rank orderings only and so there's no they're very coarse grained in their preference in their preferences but the standard is to map it's 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 to map uh outcomes to a number between zero and one a real number right so then you always you know you you, of course you have a, a just just like for belief you have the probability of a proposition being true gets a number between zero and one on the epistemology side, but also on for action, like the desirability of an outcome would get, uh, between zero, you know, or the, or the, 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 the preferability of an outcome could get between zero and one, or you can, I mean, they're different systems or you can just go with utils assigned to it on an infinite scale. Right. So (laughs)
2: it's, it's, to me that sounds like a layman's version of praxeology <laughs> like or
0: uh, or a light version of it maybe there are there are many versions so I shouldn't I yeah. shouldn't uh, get yeah. out over my skis here and I'm also it. not a decision theorist I work on the no, no. I'm an epistemologist right so I haven't really yeah. done much in decision theory all right I haven't I haven't worked on it but it's to me like uh I guess the way I think about what what econ used to be before Econ became psychologized. (laughs) All right, so you know what I mean. Econ, econ uh, now is is very much overlapping the department of psychology. A lot of a lot of people work. I I guess that's behavioral economics, right? Like people are behaving irrationally. Let's understand it, right? But but old time uh, econ used to just be this a priori science of trying to trying to maximize references in a social way right and then i yeah. guess i guess there's the individual version of that which i just think of as decision theory
2: oh yeah but there's here we come back to praxeology again for it because it always starts and ends with the individual and the individual's decision and yeah who's who's to say uh who are you to say that my preference should or should not be this or that and as so on and so forth and you can you can actually prove that uh, uh, the more the more free a society is and the less violent it is and the, the, the less theft that is going on, the, the, the higher the, the, the net outcome of you know if, if you were to uh, add up ho- how many people had their will satisfied. Uh, it's, uh, I have a hard time putting this in words I, r- I realize but but there's a
0: lot there. Well, um, this is a big choice point, and I'm curious about how how it goes down with the uh, praxeologists. Because, yeah, how do you how do you sum the the goods? You know, multiple actors in a scenario.
2: You, you can't. But what you can say is that uh, if a person is deprived of some of his possessions, like like th- take the extreme case, if you're deprived of all of your possessions. What happens then? Uh, so, you, so you have no clothes, no food, no house to live in, nothing. Then you're, you're forced uh, into adopting a very high time preference mindset, which means that you, you have to take care of your most urgent needs first, because otherwise you'll die. So you'll have to find food and shelter, and you'll probably stop at nothing to, to acquire those, because people want to survive. In order to survive, we must act and if pure survivalists are like an in, instinct will take over a lot and you probably won't uh, have time to think of long term investments and starting a family and stuff like that so, so the more things that are taken away from you in, in involuntarily the, the 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 worse your capacity to to think long term which also means that you in you will you will prioritize consumer goods over production goods so so you won't you won't uh, in, instead of instead of taking your time to construct a fishing rod you will try to f- catch fish with your hands if you're really really hungry it, because in order in order to produce something that can increase your capacity to do whatever it is you do in the future you need to s- set aside some time frame to do that so, like, in order to for, for me, for instance, I wrote books. I in order to uh, to uh, reap the fruits of selling books, I needed to set aside time to write the fucking things in the first place. While I could just have stayed well, like working at Mac- McDonald's every uh, every day and not working anyway, you know this because you're a professor. <laughs> you 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 set aside a lot of time to get your credentials to get to where whatever point in your career you are at this moment. And whenever something is taken away from from you, regardless if it's from a uh, robber, a thief, uh, you know, someone kidnaps your family, or if it's from taxes or inflation, doesn't matter to what what effects it will have on your behavior. For for instance, take an entrepreneur with an apple tree uh, that, if he were left to his own devices, he could sell the apples and afford another apple tree that the, the subsequent year. So next year he has two apple trees, he can sell the double amount of apples because, let's say, for, for, for argument's sake, that uh, the entire world is his customer base, so he can do this for a long time. So the year after that he can get four apple trees, and then eight, and then 16, and so on and so forth. But if uh, half of his revenue is, take, is deprived of him from taxes and inflation the first year he will never get to the second apple tree so you miss out on these uh uh, exponential effects that can occur if a person is is left to decide for himself what to do with his capital or at least for those people who are imaginative enough to come up with ideas that that have exponential effects but but if you take into account that every person, almost every person on Earth, pays taxes and pays for inflation, especially because inflation is everywhere and it's a hidden tax, uh, by increasing the money supply, you steal from everyone. So, so everyone is a victim of this, and partial—you could call it partial slavery. A portion of the f- of the fruits of your labor, labor, automatically goes to a third party that is unelected and you, you have no say in, in what they do, but they have a money printer, so they can d- very directly steal from everyone else, which hampers the entire global economy enormously. And what, what happens in the long run is that more and more resources get misallocated because it gets, uh, uh, you gain an advantage from not holding on to this money that is losing value over time. And instead you buy assets and invest in long-term projects that that start to build something that people hadn't really wanted had they had a, uh, a perfect form of money in the first place. Because the only reason that they want to buy that shit that you build, like zombie company shit, uh, is that the money was corrupt in the first place. So they're also trying to get rid of their money as soon as possible. So there's a... Massive. There are massive amounts of uh, resource misallocation going on absolutely everywhere. And this is, <laughs> this is the segue into environmentalism, because every yeah. a- a- environmental issue stems from, from money being corrupt. There's no question about it. We wouldn't have a consumerist culture the way we do without the corruption of money. It just doesn't happen. Like It's, it's not sustainable, and it cannot be. Because the only uh, the only way to keep this machine going is to is to have the money printer running at a faster and faster pace all the time. You, you know this is uh, the um, Jeff t- thesis about technology being exponentially yes. better and the money printer needing to go exponentially faster because of that. So it is a it's headed for disaster. And luckily now we have this thing called Bitcoin that is provides us with an alternative and a way to a uh, life raft, if you will. It's just something to. Hop onto and save yourselves from from the coming collapse because <laughs> this is this is the sad state of the world, and yeah, praxeology helps you see this more clearly. Uh, I believe, you know. The I Disclaimer: see. I might be
0: wrong, but um, there we are. No, I, 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 I see it. No, I I think <laughs> yeah. Just rolling back the tape a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that praxeology will fit within decision theory Uh, that Mm -hmm. is decision theory is very broad It not one thing it's not like a it's a it's a it's a project so the project is really to describe in the most general terms the rationality of decision making and i think you know i'm familiar with certain i guess uh particular schools of thought and decision theory But the most general form does not dictate that, you know, that preferences should be cardinally assigned, Mm -hmm. but ordinal is fine. Or yeah, just partial rank ordering is fine. Rank ordering with ties is fine and doesn't have any particular utility function in in mind. So I'm guessing that the, the most general form of decision theory has to accommodate praxeology but the praxeology then makes specific claims within decision theory. I think that's probably the, uh, the right taxonomy for what's going on. No. And in, on, your, on your where you went with it, I, 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 I completely agree. And I, I think that... Good to hear. It's bizarre to me that we have a discipline, the discipline of economics, that in, in a way sees money as one of the only goods, maybe the only good, Where there shouldn't be a free market in money, but there needs to be an imposed monopoly, right? Yeah. And that this imposed monopoly needs to be ever shifting in its money supply in reaction to the demand for money, whether that demand is expanding or whatever. So uh, yeah, as I see it, people are forced to use Money because of a social coordination problem. Like we have to coordinate on some tool for pricing things and exchanging because that's definitely better than not coordinating. Like it's better to coordinate than not to coordinate. Even if the thing you're coordinating on is 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 shitty, it's better than barter. Right. So as long as as long as as long as the money is better than barter, people will use it. And then if you herd them onto a certain tool of exchange that that isn't that's better than barter and it's really the only one that, that you can use because it's what everyone else is using and then you manipulate the supply uh, of that of that tool uh, you you, you uh, it's weird to think that you get that optimal via decision rather than you know well now it's hard to see it in any terms other than Bitcoin you know absolute scarcity yeah, but yeah. It, it, you know, even seeing it in other terms like uh, like gold, where the scarcity isn't, uh, is dictated by the natural distribution of this resource and the difficulty of digging it out of the ground and refining it. But here's the point. What's interesting to me is that when you push this line of reasoning on an economist generally, or my experience to pushing it on economists, is that they'll say, you, Troy, are taking a certain kind of Axiom, you're taking a certain kind of coordinate system which fixes the supply of money as like the natural state, and you see the distorted state as changing supply of money in response to demand for money. You see that as a distortion of the natural. So you're asking, like, well, what would things be like if we went back to the natural state? Now, and I, the economist, Refuse to acknowledge that that would that, that either of these states is natural, and what and what I say is that consumption is of course changed, and so is investment. These are both changed by the supply of money being changed. Of course, they don't deny that typically, um, and in particular, they don't deny it if the changes are not, you know, programmed and they are not foreseeable. For unforeseen and unprogrammed. Changes in money supply, of course, those will have effects on consumption and investment. If they didn't, then then there would be no point yeah. in, in controlling the supply. But they say when you when you take the next step and say that's malinvestment, or you take the ne- next step and say that's excess consumption, you, Troy, are making an assumption that the optimal one, the optimal kind of investment and the optimal kind of consumption would would be what we consume and invest under an algorithmically, you know, under a limited supply of of, of money regime. I economists refuse to grant that assumption. <laughs> yeah. You know, why does that make it malinvestment? Right. So, so maybe you can maybe you can rewind the tape on yourself just a little bit and and reverse mm-hmm. the part of the argument where you where you say, yeah, it's it, this isn't just an arbitrary starting point. You know, the the no. The idea of limited money isn't just an arbitrary starting point, no better and no worse than whatever the Fed decides tomorrow.
2: Yeah. And, and all of those economists that you talk about, they come from other schools than the Austrian school. So they, they base their assumptions on whatever they they were taught in, in fiat academia, for, for lack of a better term. And of course, those views are going to be skewed in favor of whatever suits them and their friends best and also what's whatever suits whoever built the school best and whatever fits you know the the uh, the, the ruling class of that society uh, I, I don't think there's a grand conspiracy behind this i think this is just what happens when you have this distortion it it, it plays into the hands of of those that uh, benefit from it and they become insanely powerful and this is why why keynes's theories were so welcomed by by all the governments of the world because finally they had a intellectual that they could point to and say you should listen to this guy but what, <laughs> but the real reason why they said so was because they get very powerful from it they can fund wars because because of the theories he, he put forth and uh, yeah. I would say that the, these, uh, the, I, I would use the, 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 the Hopper defense there and say, explain it to those economy, <laughs> and economists that are questioning why, why the money supply should be fixed. Ask them the simple question how do you create value by, by printing money? Where does the value come from? Like, how does it benefit society? just just tell me uh, if if there are you know 200 trillion dollars circulating in the economy how does printing another 100 change anything for the better because all it all it can actually do of course f- people feel like they're getting richer because the 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 number on their screen goes up they have more dollars what they don't see is the hidden cost and and all of these economists they they, they point at history and say, this is what happened there. And what what they're leaving out is all other possible timelines that could have happened had they not been been doing their, their bullshit economic scheme. Like <laughs> all pr- printing more units of a medium of exchange can do is reallocate whatever res- resources were already there. And that's what it's doing. It's funneling wealth from the middle and the lower classes into the hands of the elite, and you can you can very see, clearly see it because fifty people own half of the world, and the, you know that that's that's what we're living in now, and that's why when, when people uh, attack Bitcoin from that angle, I am I'm, uh, I'm so depressed by that. They say, "Oh, this is just for the people who were in first, and it's uh, it's only for people to pump their bags, and you know only rich people can get a." Yeah. Well, look at what the world looks like today. You're describing the system we're living in. That was deliberately s- so li- like Nixon went off the gold standard. You can watch the it's on YouTube the the, <laughs> the, the old news segment where he speaks to the nation cl- claiming that it's a good thing to go off the gold standard. But but, but what he effectively did was giving himself a, uh, a, a an oil printer. After that, he could print oil, and everyone else had to pay for it. So, so <laughs>
0: yeah. I, if you I, look I, at it I,
2: honestly, that's what happened.
0: Yeah. No, stepping back, I I mean, back into in my own journey into Bitcoin, and I guess I figured this out prior to two thousand eight. Actually, thinking about money supply, that, but the point you made. It's familiar, but it's worth rehearsing again and again and again. That printing mm-hmm. money does not create resources. No, that changing changing the money supply does not create any value of any kind. Uh, no. You know, I mean, there's no there's no additional economic good produced just by changing this number. And I guess you can think about it just by what would happen if we what would happen that- if we didn't if we change the money supply without changing its distribution. So. Think about it this way. Uh, it's yeah, possible, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Just like adding a zero to everything. Yeah. Changes nothing. Changes nothing. So no. why so why is it that why is it that changing the money supply is so consequential given that just adding a zero to everything wouldn't really change anything? Well, it's because well, it changes the distribution.
2: Yeah, you know? that's what it is. It's
0: it's redistribution of wealth from the poor so we, to the rich. So, so we so, kind of have to ask, you know, every time every time we change the money supply. We have to ask, is this a good redistribution? Recognize it for what it is. <laughs> is it yeah, is or or, or just
2: not do the, or just not do that, preferably? <laughs> because yeah, that's, right.
0: that's an additional step, right? One step yeah. is like sh- <laughs> one you know, that's just to say, is this a good redistribution? And then your answer is like, well, all redistributions are bad, therefore <laughs> no, it's yeah, not a good one. But
2: that that is my answer, because I can prove right. it. If I, I given guess, enough time, I could. <laughs>
0: <okay>. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I guess I'm just slowing you down and saying there's two steps there. Even if you think in general wealth redistribution can be good, you still must ask yourself every time the money printer goes burr, yeah. is this a good one? Yeah. Yeah. The, so
2: so that that's a message for for those that think wealth dis- redistribution is a good thing. Ask yourself, how does money printing redistribute wealth? And if it exactly. goes if it goes the wrong way, why is it still happening? Uh, and the answers are pretty clear when you understand people's incentives to do something. The by the way, uh, just a, an explanation of what my understanding of Keynesianism and the uh, the theories behind it. it. It's like if I have a hundred dollars and it loses value over time, I'm more inclined to spend it more often, and every time. It exchanges hands something is added to the economy and what but and i thought about that a lot because it's it sort of makes sense the first time you hear it like if if people trade more more trade is going on and that's good for the economy right but what it leaves out is that since the money is losing value people will prefer consumer goods over production goods and they will prefer short-term short-term investments uh as opposed to long-term ones, which leads to a world where those who actually make long-term investments and you know take huge loans and uh, they they will end up with all the wealth, the, the people with the resources, and everyone else gets poorer. And uh, so, so it's not it's not if if you take everything into account, it's not adding anything to the economy. It's just what you say if we just added a zero to every dollar bill out there, it wouldn't make any
0: difference. Yeah, I, I think life. back to. I think back to, uh, I think I was in graduate school and I just got interested in the Great Depression for some reason. Yeah. And I, I just went to the, the library and got like a dozen books on, oh. you know, history books on the yeah. Great Depression. Like, why did this thing happen? It wasn't anything related to my studies, but I, I was just curious about it. And um, every one of those books was different. <laughs> They had wildly different theories, and my my big takeaway was just like, wow, nobody knows why the Great Depression happened. This is amazing. Like, because, yeah, it was kind of stunning how how little overlap there was in the literature. But I would say the dominant story, the dominant story is Ben Bernanke's. It's that we had a shortage of money, and... uh, Yeah, and
2: it's depressing because it's false. Probably I mean, so.
0: It's sort of like, I mean, it's b- very baffling that you, it, it's very baffling that you have a bunch of sort of, you have a bunch of sort of economic potential on this theory, which is just sitting there idle. There's like, people are not making investments they should make. People are not making goods they should make. They, people are not buying when they should be buying, etc. There's a whole bunch of economic activity no. that is not happening only because this coordination instrument, money, this instrument for co- social coordination I- I- is, is in short supply, right? Like if, only, like if only you had more of it, then all, all of these dams of, of potential activity would be broken and then the economy would restore itself. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's a bizarre, like in a way, it's like a diagnosis of wide-scale, wide-scale human irrationality. Like you know, you and I, we could enter into a neat agreement for exchange and and pr- production. Whether you you know, you know, we're, we're we're talking about some future venture we could enter into, or you could consume mm-hmm. something that I sell you, whatever. And and the only reason we're not doing that is that there isn't enough money. And if you added more money, suddenly we would, <laughs> right? And that, that's the dominant theory, and that's the guy who then, you who know. then guided us through the financial collapse.
2: Yeah, and. <laughs> And that's why the snowball is ginormous <laughs> at this point, and that when when it in inevitably crashes, it will be way worse than it would have had to be, because we've been building on top of uh, on top of an unsustainable system since forever. It's been right. going on for a hundred years, right. Uh, right. If, and that's you- why everyone's in debt. Like the whole entire fucking world is in debt. There's like four countries that don't have national debt. And what that inevitably means is that so- someone, somewhere down the line, will have to pay that debt. Either be us or our children or our grandchildren. We don't know. But someone will have to pay.
0: Well, you know, pay. pay I agree with you in, if we read pay br- broadly. <laughs> but yeah, of course yeah. we can default. And that default is itself a kind of payment, isn't it? Right? Someone pays in the case of it default. is,
2: It is. It and, and, but, is. But imagine we do that. And everything comes to a halt. So, you know, <laughs> then we, we get into a, if that was a Great Depression, this one will be a fucking, the, you know, the mother of all depressions. Luckily, we have Bitcoin. So, so we can still trade with one another using that and just bypass the whole, the whole thing. And
0: I mean, it, you, you know you know how the plan, the plan is something like, it's like, look, we're temporarily stuck because we have an economic slowdown. Let's print some money to get us unstuck, thereby borrowing from the future, essentially. But when it t- comes time to pay that bill, ultimately, we won't be able to pay it. So we will either default or inflate. Yeah. If we default, then that's one kind of, kind of redistribution of wealth. If we inflate, that's another kind of redistribution a, of wealth.
2: Yeah, but the default, at least it's a correction. Uh, inflating more is just more of the same and more of, more of slavery. yeah yeah, and how the fed prints money is pretty interesting too they exchange it for government bonds and what's a government bond it's a it's a promise from the government to pay something back at a later date and how does the government how does the government make money taxes so it's a promise from the government to be as lead at least as as wholly to your children as they were to you in order (laughs) for you to get to spend money that doesn't exist in the first place to, 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 so you're sending your children into more debt, debt, which is to be paid by back by a government that can only make its money by stealing even more from those children that are supposed to pay that debt back. So, so it's a a double bad. So it's, it's so ridiculous.
0: I feel like we're we're rehashing in some ways Jeff's uh, Jeff Booth's uh, you know take because yeah I, I mean the thing that's made this possible and made, has made it seem okay is technology you know, it is because it is we've had such tremendous growth in productivity that it's yeah. like in a way it's a system that 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 looks miraculous because here's what happens we borrow from our children. But with those borrowings, we advance technology in ways, you know, we we this malinvestment, some of this malinvestment actually hits on discoveries about how we can produce cheaper. Then we with that cheaper production, yeah. we grow faster than we otherwise would. And then that that fast growth means that. It's easier for our children if we can grow production at greater than but, the but interest so rate. But you're leaving one from.
2: point out that 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 technological advancement could have happened without the inflation part.
0: You well, know that's it, exactly that's exactly where I think the economists are going to dig in. They're going to yeah,
2: say, and well, they're going to hate me for saying that. Uh, uh, they're they're not going to listen to me anyway. But but you, but I mean, you know basically
0: <laughs> the point is something like we need malinvestment in order to in order to advance technology at the rate that it will be required to bail out our bad debt, right? <laughs> something yeah. like that. That's, that's ultimately like what they're saying.
2: Yeah. Then again, it led yeah. up to I mean, Bitcoin. So a- I percent. guess it was a good thing in the long run. <laughs> yeah.
0: And then there's the, the military point too, is something like yeah. take geopolitically two nations, one of which prints a ton of money and you know, it's, it's,
1: it's,
0: it's, let's say, let's and say prints a ton of money, let's say issues a lot of debt, which is bought in part by the rest of the world because they have weaponry. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's because of, because of the military, you establish, you know, the petrodollar, you yeah. establish the dollar as global reserve currency. That means that your debt needs to be on other countries' balance sheets. Then with that money, you can have the world's largest military and continue your military dominance. Yeah. This right. is, but also, if you contrast a country that say runs in a, um, in the very same scheme, you have a country that runs a, a lives within their means, uses let's say let's say they're on the gold standard and they remain on the gold standard, okay, or Bitcoin, and in that in that scenario, you have one country that is in a way malinvesting, but they're malinvesting in things that grow their military might. So in that geopolitical circumstance, you you don't necessarily want to be the country running on on sound money, you know what I mean? No, uh, so,
2: so but that's the trap. It, like everyone's every country is forced to play this stupid game. Exactly, uh, and th- th- this is why I view it, it makes sense if you view the First World War, what's what they called the Great War back then, as a war that hasn't ended yet, because it's a war between the governments of the world and the people of the world and the governments have been on the winning side ever since because money printing uh on these massive scales and going off the gold standards started somewhere very close to the first world war in uh, beginning in england in in the 1910s so and and they funded all the the real wars world war one and world war two by by being able to print money and thereby paying tank factory workers to to build more tanks and sending a lot of innocent people to their deaths, And after that, they realized that it's better to, instead of killing all the people, it's better to keep them enslaved and have them pay debt and (laughs) uh, have them pay a tribute, a hidden tribute forever, and uh, making that hidden tribute bigger and bigger. Now, I like I said, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't believe that that was the original plan back in the 1910s. But, but that's sort of what what actually happened. That's sort of how history played out. We're all enslaved to this system, and we think we're rich. But what we're really doing is we're buying a lot of shit that we don't need to keep us enslaved in,
0: in, in uh, tedious work, 40 hours yeah, a week, I- most of us. I think you're you're right to think about the counterfactuals. I think productivity gains and technological advances are masking are masking what's happening. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and, and as long as as long as we continue to grow productivity at a rate that is greater than the theft, yeah, uh, then you don't see the theft, right? It's no, a, no, it, because I, your your baseline is like, yeah. I mean, that's what's happened really, especially since 1971. You, you you have all of the gains of this productivity going to very very few people, yeah. And 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 because you're you're anchored, this is a psychological thing, right? But it's anchoring. Uh, yeah, you're anchored at the the point where productivity was lower. As long as your life is improving, you're like okay. Yeah. And yeah. where the elites have screwed up is in a way they haven't shared just a bit more of that productivity because they could keep the game going. Yeah, yeah much longer if they had just like but if
2: yeah and imagine such a simple thing as a screw and a screwdriver and how how much better that is now than in 1922 like if a hundred years back you had a screws were 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 made in factories sure but the factories were so much worse than they are now it's unimaginable how you know in 1922 screw factory and the screw heads only had that slit in the middle and you if you were lucky you could use a screwdriver <laughs> that's basically it like the tools were much cruder right right so the screwdriver turned into you know oh we can make different screw heads and make like we can have a, a little cross here at the head of, uh, at the head of the screw and you know the the steepness of the of the actual screw going going down the, going down the pin and oh, all sorts of innovation, material better, everything better, uh, and we figured out expanding screws to to, to put into uh, walls, uh, you know, stone walls and stuff, and and then comes the electric screwdriver and wow, uh, and after that robotics and like, <laughs> imagine how many screws. Per time unit, the increase—it's like orders of magnitude that are almost unimaginable—from from a simple tool such as a screw and a screwdriver. So, if that's let's say uh, that process of screwing in a screw into a wall, manufacturing the screw, sending it home to you, nowadays by Amazon, <laughs> for a. a, a An extremely like imagine all the production costs, the transportation costs, and uh, the actual time costs of screwing, of building something with a screw. I would say that that's, you know, at least four orders of magnitude more efficient now than it was back then. So a thousand times better or 10,000 times better. But is that a, for argument's sake, let's say it's 10 times better. At least. That's the entire
0: you know there's an entire aisle full of screws at the hardware yeah store.
2: exactly exactly that implies that everything we build with screws should be 10,000 10, we should have 10,000 each and every one of them uh, of us should have 10,000 times more of the stuff we can build with screws just because of the e- e- efficiency <laughs> gains of the screw and the screwdriver and instead those <laughs> orders of magnitude of efficiency went to the elites it's all funneled to this elite class that can build that can print trillions of dollars imagine what a trillion is most people don't know the difference between a million and a billion but the, the difference between a million and a billion is almost give or take a billion right that's right yeah And the difference between a billion and a trillion
1: is it's a trillion. Give or
2: take a trillion so so the, the the billion in terms of the trillion is a rounding error, as Greg Foss would say, and and the million in terms of the billion is a rounding error. So, <laughs> yeah, a thousand in uh, in comparison to a million, like the <laughs> the thousand is a, a rounding error, and the, a thousand as compared to one. So I I, a, I know it, I, just imagining a trillion dollars, no one could imagine that the world would ever get to a money supply of above a trillion dollars and it's more than that <laughs> that's one there's orders of magnitude more than that like you hear the term trillion dollars every day now almost eight trillion dollars were printed in in 2021 and this is one of my favorite facts because that means 21 million dollars per bitcoin mined <laughs> printed in 2021 i fucking love insane that fact. it's it's completely insane and if people knew the magnitude of the theft, like, but it, it, it all stems from people's inability to, to think exponentially and to, and to, to comprehend big numbers.
0: Yeah, so it's end, really end, true. End of rant. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's awesome, man. <laughs> I, I, I'm right there with you. I think that Jeff's... Coming back to the earlier point about why is one way of seeing money supply more natural than another why you know i I think of the economist as in in some ways moving from an aristotelian view of nature to a galilean one i mean for for galileo every point in space is like every other point in space and any reference point is as good as any other for Mm -hmm. measuring how things are moving right like whether like if you look at like your motion right now, are you in Sweden? No, I'm in Spain. You're in Spain, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. Spain, okay. So you're in Spain, I'm in Portland. One way to think about our motion is like we're still, another is like we're both rotating on the axis of the Earth. Another is we're rotating around the sun, but of course yeah. the sun is also...
2: Rotating around uh, us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> in a sense. <laughs> yeah, if it's... <if> right, <laughs> relative to one framework, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's... The sun is itself part of the Milky Way. It's, yeah, yeah, it's part is part of the uh, bro- broader system, and and so you can think of the, you can think of our motion is you know a spiral from from this larger perspective, and then you, you ask the question, yes, but what what framework describes how we are really moving, and right. and then the Galilean says, all of them or none of them, fr- framework is an arbitrary choice. Yeah. So anyway, the, the Aristotelian has the center of the earth as a, a special point in the universe. You know, yeah. the um, a, a heavy things fall towards it, light things go away from it, and heavenly bodies rotate in circles around it, you mm-hmm. know. So it's, a, it's, it's the, there's a preferred point. And I think for the economists, and, and even actually for, 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 you know, for Einstein, there's not a preferred point, but there are some frames that are better than others for measuring things. And those are inertial frames of reference things in which Mm -hmm. things are either things are not accelerating. And there's a difference between accelerated and non-accelerated motion, which, which shows up in forces. Right. Yeah. But, but the, the, for the, for the economists, there isn't a preferred way of measuring things. You know, any, any scheme of measurement is as good as any other. Right. Whereas for i think a lot of bitcoiners sound money advocates there are better and worse measures of uh, ways of measuring economic activity and um i think jeff for me helped me break out of a relativistic way of thinking about or a a straight euclidean way of thinking about economic measurement yeah because you, you you focus on technology you know take your example of the screw yeah and it's like isn't there a shouldn't there be a really good sense in which everything got cheaper and yeah, shouldn't yeah. that be front of mind shouldn't that be front of mind when we yeah, think about what's going on with the economy just that like everything just got vastly cheaper and if your system of measurement makes it hard makes it hard to express the fact that everything is getting cheaper to produce in 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 terms of other things, right, in terms of other, other then, then there's something wrong with your system of measurement. That is, it, it seems like the system of measurement we have is designed to obscure the fact that the economy has gotten vastly more productive. And, and a system of measurement that obscures that is inferior to one that reveals it. And the system of measuring in, in, a, in a limited quantity good, a limited supply good, as your kind of ba- base measure of, of of value you know it's it's better in that it reveals an important economic phenomenon that's happening, and that phenomenon is we we, we call it the, the def- we would call it deflation tech- technological deflation right that's you know the, the thing you just said it's easy to appreciate when you think about it, but why don't we see the prices of screws falling well we probably yeah. do in some minor way but well, uh, not if, mean, you if you compare measure-
2: to prices in 1922. I think a screw costs more today than it did in 1922 for sure. In nominal
0: dollar terms,
2: yeah, yeah. That's and cool. and what else do you have to measure with if if you're living in the old world,
0: like right. <laughs> labor? Maybe I, I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> but that's the cost. It's another
2: uh, like the production costs are of course lower. Uh, if you me- measure it in kilowatt hours, for instance, the, then the there prices dropped like. Orders of magnitude, of course. I would say though that the uh, the traditional economists, uh, or traditional, and traditional the fiat economists, for lack of a better word, uh, economists in in academia, they're the ones with with the old, uh, you know, heliocentric. No, uh, wh- what's it called? <laughs> Geocentrical uh, worldview because they're mentioning everything in dollars, and the bitcoiners are actually the ones that are measuring things in relation to one another it's just that we we found the perfect measuring stick because uh, and it's not because it's a physical thing because those uh, physical things i i mean if <laughs> if the universe is indeed infinite then every then there are infinite copies of of every element in it so so nothing is really finite in the way bitcoin is finite and bitcoin is you know only finite in terms of time uh, it's only because it would take an infinite amount of time to find a, a Bitcoin private key that that is finite at all <laughs> so it's just numbers but but that thing I, I view it as the, that we we now have the perfect representation of the scarcity of human time and that's what makes it such a great measuring stick and why we can trade it because it's actually trading the trading your lifetime. <laughs> Because it, it, it's the only thing that maps on to, you're, you're going to die one day. Bitcoin is the right. only thing that maps on to that, because that Bitcoin is going to be lost one day. And there's only this amount, and that's what we have. So, so it maps on to, to the scarcity of human time, uh, w- which I think is what, what gives us this immense value. B- because as I said before, I think the scarcity of human time is what, what gives that value. Uh, if, is what gives anything value. What gives our lives value. What why we do things at all.
0: Right. So, yeah. If you want a no. tool of social coordination, That maps onto that's that. That's, it's Bitcoin. Yeah. That's yeah. Apps. It, it yeah. has to be apt to rec- It has to be commensurate with the, you know, w- w- with the the space of decision, and that space of decision is finite. Exactly. because Life is finite. Yes. And so I I, I see your. I see yeah. your point. an, yeah. an infinite good and, will be, you know, useless because it won't map onto what what we're actually doing when we make economic decisions. No, trade. exactly.
2: And, and uh, interestingly enough, this is a bit of wordplay, but uh, you know, time in relation to space is called spacetime. And if it's if the Bitcoin blockchain is not a blockchain but a time chain, space in the time chain is time space.
0: So, so there's <laughs> that. <laughs> nice, nice. Time space. So yeah, you give it when you have your percentage of <laughs> your percentage of all bitcoin is your share of the time space.
2: Yeah, if uh, um, well, you can you can take up different slots of time space. You know, a, a specific amount of bitcoin in a specific Space in the blockchain, right? Is you know you can have you can have more space than that and and fewer coins. So so it's not exactly equivalent. So
0: so so it's not okay. So it's not you're actually talking about block space. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah, I'm thinking about uh, actually share of the quantity of
2: yeah. But that, big... but that's a that's another thing. But 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 block right, space but in terms of time space. It's such because I think block space or Let's call it time-space from from now on. (laughs) It's the better term. Okay. Or or clock-space. It's a clock chain. But whatever, time-space is the the world's most undervalued asset at this point. Because we know, mathematically and praxeologically, that, that this thing will be immensely expensive 100 years from now. So the, the last block will be mined around the year two thousand one hundred forty, where fees, miner fees, will have to have taken over uh, all of the you know it's it's the miner's entire revenue, right? Uh, and users create Bitcoin by running nodes and and uh, employing miners to create the Bitcoins for them, and not the other way around. So in order to do that, we need to pay them, and right now we pay them with. You know, you can have these new Bitcoins that are mined. So, so you, you, we, we pretend you're a central bank for a while. And that's why we don't see the hidden cost and how insanely cheap time space is. But we're, gonna eat, we're going to have to, to eat that up as well, because we're making these miners the new central banking class of the world <laughs> by, by, by giving away this time space for basically for free at
0: this point. Anyway, well, it's this, this is I mean, a bit
2: too deep. Maybe we should... no, I
0: like it. I like it. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm just thinking back to your assertion that it's the most undervalued thing, and I would say, I don't know about that because you know what would you rather have a certain quantity of time space or a certain quantity of Bitcoin? Yeah, and uh, uh, it and, and like you can think about that ratio as a pair. You can think about that as a trade oh, yeah. pair. This is interesting. Right. So <laughs> it's like. I mean, that's right now there's a market for that. And like you're saying, that's an undervalued market, right? Or, or that, that, that. Uh, okay.
2: Okay. okay. Let, let, let me explain there. that a bit more. Be- because the the reason I think it's undervalued is because we're not, not using its entire, ut- the, the, there's more utility to it than just sending Bitcoin back and forth, which is of immense utility too. But the thing we're not using it for is, you know, putting messages messages in it. Right. Be- because then we have a message that is, y- you have the v- world's most permanent tattoo. That thing right. will be engraved there forever. So you can actually make a statement that will be there for as long as humanity is still around. Uh, yeah. Uh, given <laughs> given, given uh, all else being equal, given that Bitcoin actually works. <laughs> Which some people may doubt others others don't but if if bitcoin continues to work that message is there for for all practical purposes for forever uh, so, yeah, so it's that's like... that's underpriced
0: anyway good I'll stop talking and now. i, I, I agree <laughs> i agree and i think uh, y- you know in terms of the trading pair one way to think about it is just the fee market right now mm-hmm. uh, but another way of thinking about it is what's really underpriced is the future access to that chain, right? Not like exactly. necessarily right now getting space in a block, but we don't have a market. We don't have a way of of buying space in blocks that are 20 years from now, right? No. <laughs> like, right, well, know, so- we do.
2: We do. We, we can time lock our Bitcoins. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. We can time lock Bitcoin. It's yeah. true. But that doesn't get us into a... That doesn't get us... You could write a message down right now, like a message in a bottle, (laughs) Yeah, Um, but you have to get into a block with some miner in the future, right? And there's no market for that right now because nobody can guarantee that they're going to get a block in the future so they can't sell you that space in a way that you trust them to get it for you. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> that's I, i'm just wondering if that's an action we should ask some more technical person maybe maybe you know but uh, i certainly don't well like, just
0: think about it like how if you wanted to sell space in a future block yeah, but
2: but can you time lock?
0: You do that you have to yeah, guarantee yeah. that you have that you're going to generate a future block
2: yeah that's a very tricky thing and, and like like you said if can i using the time lock function alone Engrave a message into a block that will happen twenty years down the line so so can I include a message in the block that unlocks the time lock bitcoins right I, right I, I right, don't know right. I don't know if I can do that program if the program does that or not or <laughs> if the command does that so so all
0: I have to ask someone well you know certainly if you could do it like yeah let's see if if it gets spent it could reveal um, yeah. something but you know but but you can't assure that it'll get spent. No, I, Some, I can somehow actually, a uh, somehow something has to happen in a block twenty years yeah, from yeah. now. Something has to get written there, yeah. and and that's going to take. You know that's the miner has to decide to include a transaction at that point, and you can't guarantee the inclusion. I mean, no, here's no. here's a way of here's a way of uh, here's a way I can make the point. Suppose somebody wants to just mine a bunch of empty blocks forever. Then your message never gets revealed because well,
2: that, that's not entirely true either, because we the the network can can push that miner out if if the users don't like that miner mining those empty blocks. Uh, we can come to a, a decision on. Uh, how to how to avoid that? There 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 is probably a right solution to that.
0: I, I'm not I'm not saying this would be a successful attack on the network. I'm just saying no. uh, as a, as a <laughs> thought experiment.
2: Yeah, yeah, you it's a fun thought experiment. The
0: would be yeah. The miner decides what to include. Maybe they don't include nothing. They just never include. No miner includes a transaction involving that particular address. <laughs> but right?
2: it's it's sort of akin to to that. I, I heard of a, a competition somewhere where, where they stored nuclear waste. And the competition was to design a sign that kept people out of there for a thousand years. <laughs> so so how, how, do you, how do you produce a message that keeps people away from something for a thousand years? And that, this right. is very much akin to this. Uh, how, do you, how do you ensure that a block is actually... <laughs> a, a transaction is actually included That's in good. the block 20 years That's down good. the line. It's, it's the same thing, really.
0: Right. What you really want is when you look at block spaces, you want um, access to block space for contemporary messages, though, not just, you know, time-locked ones. But that's what that's what you can't develop a market for and what you think is undervalued, and I agree. You know, what if you had the ability to access, uh, to, the ability to make a transaction for free in 20 years? What would that cost you? Now, what would you pay for that now? You know, the ability to put, to ensure 100% you get a transaction in a block 20 years from now. Right, that.
2: Okay, let's think about this for a while. Uh, is there a way to, you know, put a message on the blockchain now, just letters, that somehow unlocks something when a time-locked transaction actually happens, uh, x blocks down the line? so that a whoever knows how to decipher those things taken together can find a private key to, to another bitcoin address and thereby unlocking something else. Is, is there a way to do this? Is there a way to send to actually send value into the future and be positive that it, it will be there? <laughs> I I guess the easy way is just to a hodl of Bitcoin, <laughs> and you know, <laughs> write down twelve words and give it to to your descendants. Uh, that sounds way easier than doing it this yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. But I, but I have an idea for like uh, I, the time lock function is it's so fascinating. No one ever talks about it because everyone thinks it's a bad idea to 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 remove their own ability to move their bitcoins. But it's it's like the ultimate. If you have cold storage, which protects you from external attacks like this is deep free storage It it protects you from even internal attacks it protects you from yourself <laughs>
0: i mean is- I, I would i would be really wealthy had i used the time lock function
1: uh, yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> i mean, i would be enormously wealthy yeah and um
2: in hindsight, uh, we should have all done that, so
0: yeah, yeah, totally I mean <laughs> people who who lost funds on on Mount God you know even though they're getting back a fraction of their Bitcoin are coming out way ahead of where they would have come out, most to all of them right so it's it's interesting it's like on the one hand, you have the possibility that something happens to the network, you have the possibility that you know I, I've thought about for instance the quantum attack, suppose you have uh, you get a credible heads up that the quantum attack is a plausible thing in the future. And yeah. then the Bitcoin network, Bitcoiners come up with a plan to migrate coins yeah. over. And you need to sign a transaction with your keys to, to move those coins. And so you know the coins that cannot be signed are subject to the attack if the attack yeah. actually happens before the migration happens. So if I were time locking my coins and I'm unable to sign transactions, you know, I I might. Well, I guess this is also a question of how you make the migration function and whether the migration could, could maybe there's a way to, to, to route around this with the migration, but it's things like that. Like you're, you're just sitting there hapless because you're, you're unable, you didn't have access to your keys, let's say. You're unable to uh, to sign this thing to migrate over, and then you're subject to the attack. And other other Bitcoiners are flexible and able to move. But
2: the thing with a quantum attack, though, is that all the things that leaves out because if if there if that was actually a thing, uh, like everything else would break too that uses. Strong, what we call oh, strong, strong cryptography, and then we have way bigger pr- problems than Bitcoin breaking, right?
0: <laughs> like, yeah, I haven't, uh, uh, I haven't gone super deep on this, but my, my, where I did get with it was like it's, it's unlikely, it's out there in the future, but there are more and less resistant algorithms, yeah, and where we would get the heads up is something like the NSA would. Tell people to stop using SHA two fifty six for important functions, and they would do that well ahead of where it breaks. <laughs> in particular, they would tell their own people, like the government itself, would would migrate away from these functions that are breakable, and yeah. then they would migrate to functions that aren't. And they would probably do that well in advance of the technology c- catching that point. Yeah. So, so as to, so as to keep their own their own secrets. That would give the that would give us time to move coins if it did happen, right? And it would give banking the time to move and so on, right? I mean, They'd have the whole economy like gradually moving over to more resistant algorithms. Um, the downside would be if if the attack actually happened, you know, Satoshi's coins would be, well, you know, we'd have to deal with that somehow, right? <laughs> we'd have to, especially because he exposed his pub in the early mm-hmm. transactions. Oh yeah. And so we'd have to uh, those coins would be spendable in, in the old in the old regime and or or movable to new to new addresses by by an attacker who ultimately gets there. So there would Does be applications like you know, well, supply could go up. For people for people who have their colds in their, their keys in cold cold storage and don't check the news for many, many years, there could be a danger, right? Yeah, uh, that's a danger but always, always. Ultimately it like, could that's how it would unfold. If it were to unfold as we would get a heads up pretty long in advance, like many years, we would migrate along with the rest of the economy. It would be messy. There would be certain glitches, but you know, I don't see it happening in a sudden and if it happens in a sudden and unpredictable way, then everybody is screwed. Governments, banks, our entire lives.
2: Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and, uh, the way that would happen is if some <laughs> some AI went rogue and and just invented this thing out of thin air and oh my god built it in a Tesla factory or something <laughs> then oh my god we're yeah. in a Skynet situation then and then everything's fucked anyway so
0: yeah exactly <laughs> exactly we're back to exactly.
2: yeah we're back to that Troy I I had hoped we would get into um, uh, environmentalism a bit during this conversation, but but I think starting on that track now, after two hours, it's a bit, but we we have to do this again. I I completely love this conversation. I thought it was excellent, and I hope I didn't talk too much.
0: (laughs) But uh, no, not uh, at all. Not at all. I uh, hope I didn't either. uh, uh, You're here to talk. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Out of my element, you know, like, I I need to read the two books uh, that you recommended I have yeah. read a little bit of Rothbard, yeah. but I haven't read this economic theory in the Austrian method. And uh, I'm, you know, for that matter, haven't really done the deep dive on decision theory as well.
2: No, I, um, I should definitely look into that. I've uh, checked the Wikipedia page now, and there, there's normative, prescriptive, and descriptive uh, decision theory, according to Wikipedia. That's the
0: is and the odd, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. So, uh, yeah, this sounds like uh, something I have to dive down into, definitely.
0: Yeah, and and the theory of expected utility, which is kind of a branch of of it. Yeah, Uh, that sounds a lot
2: like praxeology.
0: (laughs) Exactly. So, I, I wonder, what I need to know is, and I feel like I already should have known coming into this conversation, is like, what is exactly the relation between these disciplines and... Where where do praxeologists depart from standard decision theory, or do they fit inside the axiom yeah, yeah. in a certain way? Yep. Do they fit inside the taxonomy in a certain way? But yeah, this has been great, Knut, and uh, you know, as, as always, as always, super interesting uh, t- yeah. to talk to you. And um,
1: uh, likewise, we
0: did we did in some ways talk about the environment because we talked about over basically
1: yeah the,
0: the biggest the biggest framework. Uh, yeah, yeah. So thinking about Bitcoin in the environment is really is really the distortion of money supply, cr- creating malinvestment and co- you know consumption forward consumption. Yeah, and trying to think about what the economy would look like on a sound money standard, where goods are cheap and abundant. Yeah, uh, because the technological gains are one of in in one sense they're distributed. And and in the other sense, they are just. There, there's actually more technological gains since there's less malinvestment. If you think of now, <laughs> yeah. if you think of investment going well, then the technological gains, while in the short run, might come slower. In the long run, they should be better because we'll throw less money away on zombie yeah, yeah. companies.
2: Less and, malinvestment. That's that's the thing.
0: So, you know, on the one hand, there's technological progress. You, know, you if you're of a certain kind of mindset, you'll see ah, well, less malinvestment means we would actually have a faster growing economy, which means actually we would have more environmental destruction. Yeah, I mean, on the other hand, uh, we have forms of technology that are environmentally beneficial and we would have more advances along those lines. Like, for instance, energy, benef- for instance. Benef-
2: Beneficial to whom is the the follow up question there? And then we have because what, what we could have what we could have talked about just to just to uh, give uh, give people a hint what our next conversation might be about, <laughs> and that is uh, f- for instance we, we we both agree on uh, great many things about how Bitcoin mining is actually good for the environment not not only in that Bitcoin is better for the environment because it stops over consumption but how uh bitcoin mining can function as a suspension mechanism for for uh, uh you know energy that would otherwise have gone to waste and how you can build power plants in the middle of nowhere and still get the uh, utility from whatever there's there's so much to say about that but then there there's the whole co2 debate and and uh, what uh what what that actually does and uh, what the science says and what the science does not say and uh, uh, the level of agreement within the scientific community and if politicians are the right people to to attack these problems and what the long term uh, negative effects of political interference are uh, i mean there's a plethora of of you know subgenres of conversation to have there uh, around all of that stuff and I, th- uh, I think, definitely, uh, I think we should we should aim at, at talking about that the next time we we talk to one sure. another. And And
0: um, and I I just think that I suspect that we have more agreement than disagreement. Actually.
2: Yeah, I do points. too. Uh, I, I do too. We 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 were in total agreement on in Lisbon when we talked about it then. So so I think we're yeah very I, uh, much aligned.
0: I think we have maybe different. Uh, we're coming at it from different angles, but you know the 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 bitcoiner part of us uh i think allows us to see some of the same some of the same problems and distortions in the current debate which is which is uh ugly and in very in in many ways the debate seems like people talking past one another uh Yeah, yeah to my my mind and you know as a I think Bitcoin offers us a rare opportunity here. I'll say this and no more. It offers us a rare opportunity to take two sides of a political political slash scientific debate, which seem very much at odds, and find common ground and a common way of moving forward that doesn't require us to settle every scientific or empirical difference between us. I, I think it's like a rare moment where yeah. you can say, "Okay, we don't agree about X and Y or Z, but we can agree that the path forward uh, looks very much the same." <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I, I you know, I, yeah, I get into these debates that I don't really want to have. With, no, no um, I know. Both with both, I mean, climate people, and also with Bitcoiners. Yeah, because I, I kind of think we have a we have an opportunity to land on a common solution without settling you know the, the really difficult questions are something like how do we weigh how do we weigh the potential for harm from greenhouse gases and the distribution of that harm against energy poverty and yeah. energy access which is also a harm a clear and present harm yeah to to a lot of the same people. And, and then how do we weigh government distortions of economies also and the economic impact that, that will have? How do we weigh all these against each other? Yeah. You know, and, and I feel like that's an incredibly difficult question about which we will, we will not come to an agreement. And I feel like there's, a, there's a, the, the way forward with, with Bitcoin doesn't require that we nail down precisely answers to those questions. No, <laughs> which is which is why it's a very cool and unique solution, right? It's like, uh, yeah. Uh, well,
2: a- we can we accept a- accept the fact that governments are bullshit,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: right? But we might. But uh, but this is also why why I'm so keen on hearing a debate between or. Just a conversation between—I should say—conversation instead of debate, because I don't think it will be much of a de- debate between you and safe Saifuddin, well, it's, it's because... on
0: the books. It's going to oh, happen oh, in Oh, great, January. great.
2: Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Because because yeah, the, I think safe... I suspect you agree, you two agree way more than you think you do, uh, and especially I, I... yeah, and and well, way more than safe thinks you do too. So it's, uh, that's what I suspect. So so let's see. I, I think time will tell. Too.
0: Safe wants to call it a debate, and he wants to focus on our points of disagreement and yeah. uh, i I was hoping we could have a conversation. He wants it to be a debate so i'm uh accommodating on that front uh, but I'm definitely going to try to frame things you know in a way that even though we disagree about certain matters i i think I think Bitcoin is a way of moving forward despite our disagreements yeah rather than you know, what I mean, I don't think Bitcoin, I don't think being, I don't think the solution that I see and that safe sees depends on who's right about that trade-off that I mentioned no. earlier. And so I, even though it's going to be a debate about that trade-off, I, I don't really care whether I win or lose that one. I honestly don't. So in some ways it's like, I'm ready to go into that debate saying, you know, here's my, here's my opinion. Here's my evidence it differs from yours i yeah i have more uh i guess i'm more just of the mainstream opinion than safe is about the danger side of global warming yeah but on the prescription side i don't think i differ
2: no exactly I, at all that, very well put that's like <laughs> we, we all agree on the prescription side because even even if you're not afraid of co2 at all if you, if you completely yeah. if you're what they call a climate denier that that completely th- thinks that it this this whole uh, you know danger narrative is completely wrong if if you're that guy then bitcoin is still the solution because it's also over consumption which which destroys the environment in all sorts of other ways <laughs> like we all want to live in a better world so so And that's the environment (laughs) so 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 bitcoin is better even for those people too
0: i i know i don't know uh, if seyfedean's uh hypothesis that bitcoin literally changes time preference is true because it's it's an empirical hypothesis it seems to me but i think it's true i mean i I think it's true but it's intuitively true It's intuitively true. Yeah. It seems true of my own experience. It seems true of others that I know. I, you know, here's where I feel like I'd like, I would like empirical research on, on whether it's actually true, but he thinks it's true. Of course it's his, it's his hypothesis. Oh. <laughs> and, um, and I think that it's, you know, going back to, to, you know, Jeff's perspective, Safidines is closely related and it's, if ultimately you can shift people's time preferences, to being a longer, high, uh, lower time preference. I mean, that's not only is that environmentalism in a nutshell, the very essence of yeah. environmentalism is yeah. much bigger than any question about like. That's what, it. That's it. That's it. I mean, it, it's it's like it's not just environmentalism. It's actually ethics. It's everything. It's just yeah. It, it's, it's ethics. Ev- it's everything.
2: It's and uh, yeah. So. Once again, that Hopper book, Economic Science and the Austrian Method, I urge you to read that before the conversation okay. with Seyfedin, because it's going to help will. you there. Uh, I will. And, and you might have come out afterwards with a different view of empirical uh, evidence altogether. <laughs> 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 that, okay, that's, what, okay. that's what it did to me. I, I'm not sure what it will do, do to you. You've probably read a ton of more books than I did. But, but anyway, it's a very good read. So so yeah, and here's our four extended hands. Come on, Luke, (laughs) to uh, uh, you know invite you again to a uh, another conversation about about whatever we we end up talking about then. (laughs) And this well, thank you for having me. Thanks for having me. This has been great.
0: Yeah, you know it's 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 always a pleasure. I hope I get a chance to uh, hang out in person in the future.
2: So great pleasure meeting you again and having another conversation i'd love to do this again and i'd love to do it soon so if you're and we have to jam you have to play piano and i have to play guitar uh, <laughs> <laughs> all
1: right,
0: all right. <laughs> love your piano play thank you canute
1: <laughs> so yeah thanks a lot for this troy i really appreciate uh, you coming on here and uh, i've i've enjoyed uh, just letting the two of you uh, completely go at it it's been awesome so, um, yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot for this. Uh, I, I also hope to uh, meet you in person and have you back on as well. So thanks again. Thank you, Luke. Really great meeting you. Have a good Same. night. Yeah, This has been the Freedom Footprint Show. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks, Troy Cross.
0: Thank you.